Well, as we turn now to the um, sermon portion of our service, let's open our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, continuing our series on the Lord's Supper. Today's plan is to look at one key verse. The one key verse is verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as if they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I said something wrong, and now I long for yesterday. Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play, and now I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Those are song lyrics. If you've never heard them, then you might have had your head in the musical sand. And that song is written by the Beatles. According to the Guinness World Records, the song Yesterday has the most cover versions of any song that has ever been written. More than 1,600 recorded versions of yesterday. I think the Lord's Supper is a lot like a musician playing a cover song. A cover song, as you hopefully know, is when a person plays a song that was recorded and performed by somebody else. And so they either will sing the same words and try and play the same melody and music exactly like the person performed it, or they will use their own artistic expression and creative abilities and slightly alter the song to make it their own. Still the same song, but their own twist to it. And as you could easily figure out, there's only so much altering you can do to a cover song. If you so change the words or the music, you're going to get people saying, yeah, you're not singing that song anymore. One of my favorite examples of this is one of the other more popular songs that's been covered quite a bit is Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And there's a whole book that's been written about the formation of that song. It's a not a book I've read, but uh, I, I have come across a, a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell on how this song came to be, and it's quite a fascinating story. And as Malcolm Gladwell was explaining this song, he was also talking about people's strong emotions and feelings about the right interpretation, the right cover of Hallelujah. And that if you don't sing it quite like Jeff Buckley and you sing it more like pentatonics, then like you're, you're not getting it right. And so whether or not you know what I'm talking about in terms of those music groups, the point is cover songs are about interpretation. And they're about whether or not you're being true to the original. And in many ways, I think that that's 
what we need to think about today when we think about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, when we do it, is more like a cover song than it is like so many other things. So let's read this passage one more time. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One big idea for today's message. The practice of the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel. The practice of the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel. And what I want to do is I want to take that one big idea sentence and I want us to just make sure you understand each part of it. First, the Lord's Supper is a practice. The practice of the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel. It's a practice. Eating the bread and drinking the cup is something that we do, and it's something that I said last week that does something to us. What is the key command in the passage right before verse 26? Notice verse 26 begins with the word for, and therefore it's building off of what was just said. So what was just said? Verse 23, for I received from the Lord when I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I don't think you need to read Greek to know this, but the command here is do, even in English. Do this in order to remember. Do this in order to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in the same way, if you're going to learn to play a cover song, whether it's of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah or the Beatles' Yesterday, it's not enough to simply just listen to the song and then say, okay, I've covered it. You need to hear it. You need to hear it not just once, but again and again and again until you have so memorized every word and every chord and note until you have internalized it. And then and only then will you be able to create your own version of it. If you don't actually know the first version, then how are you going to spin off and create your own expressions of the song? And in the same way, I think that the Lord's Supper is a practice. The command is not for us to just listen to the gospel being preached, although that's a wonderful command and we are commanded to do that. But in this text from Jesus, the command is do this. And Paul says, for when you do this, the eating and the drinking, the doing that it proclaims, and so we need to realize that the command is not to illustrate or see. It is not to listen or hear. It is a command of doing and doing it again and again and again. It is a practice. And so Paul says to do this. There's an essay in this book by Peter Lightheart. Um, I'm going to read a couple little sections from it to illustrate these points. In the end of this book, he talks about this point, and I thought he said it quite well. First, he says, the effect of the Lord's Supper has more in the realm of acquiring a skill than in the realm of learning a new set of facts. The effect is more like training than it is teaching. 
In the Lord's Supper, we eat the bread and we drink the cup together with thanksgiving, not merely to show the way that things ought to be in the world, but to practice together the way things really ought to be. He goes on to say, in the context of biblical teaching and robust community life, the skills and virtues practiced at the Lord's table should spill over into the whole church as a sort of Eucharistic ethos. In short, the Lord's Supper exercises the church in the protocols of life. As we do life in the presence of God, the supper then is not God's flannel graph of the gospel so much as it is the church's role play. And this is where I thought of the idea of an instrumental cover and us learning the song and not just hearing the song and liking it and saying, oh, that was good. I enjoyed that performance. I was a spectator. I was passive, but rather a performer. Lightheart says this, the Lord's Supper is not merely a sign that we examine or dissect or analyze. It is a ritual whose enactment is a discipline of the church in the virtue of Christian living, and it forms the church and thereby molds the world into something more like the kingdom that it signifies. As with music or in drama, the interpretation of the Lord's Supper lies chiefly in our performance of it, and its performance should fill not only a few minutes of worship, but all of our life. The operative command in connection with the supper is not to reflect or even remember, but to do this. In remembrance of me. Therefore, last week's sermon becomes all of the more significant. Last week's sermon was, how do we go about doing it? And does that even matter? Can we use Coke or Pepsi or donuts and coffee? Or does the bread and the wine or the bread and the fruit of the vine, the juice, make any difference? Does it matter who we do it with or who should take or not take? Does it matter how often we take it and so on and so forth? That was last week's message. And if it is doing something to us and the practice is a part of the script of how we're supposed to live out our lives together and perform in this world, then the doing does matter. How we go about taking the Lord's Supper is not trivial. It's not arbitrary. The doing is to have a meal together, as I argued last week. It is to have a meal with the church in order for us to practice love and fellowship and unity in the midst of our diversity and our broken society. The doing of this, the doing of the Lord's Supper, is about sharing with one another. It is koinonia in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's why we call it communion. It is about welcoming and receiving one another. It is not something where we eat ahead of one another or we create social classes or distinctions. We serve one another. Jesus washed the disciples' feet before he did the Lord's Supper. And so at the very heart and spirit of the Lord's Supper is sharing and serving and love and life together. Not individuals separately getting their bread in the cup. This is why I mentioned last week, drive-by communion will not be practiced by Embassy Church because it is antithetical to the whole practice. That's, That's not the song that we sing. That's not doing the right cover of the Lord's Supper. So do this. Do a meal that practices the proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. Do it. Practice it. And we do it every week for that purpose because it forms us. It shapes us. It's an identity-shaping 
practice for us as individuals, but more importantly, collectively as a church and community. So that was the first idea. The Lord's Supper is a what? It's a practice. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a practice that does something it proclaims. And this is one of the strangest things that Paul says in this whole section. He uses the word that in every other instance that Paul ever uses this word, it is about announcing the gospel or teaching the Bible. It is about preaching. And in this context, look at verse 26 again. I'm not making this up. He says, when you eat and when you drink, you, plural, are proclaiming the Lord's death. And I think the only way to read this in Greek or in English is to understand this as the doing of the eating and drinking is the proclaiming. And I tried to scour all of the different views on this. There are many people that disagree with that view. And they think that the the proclaiming that Paul's talking about is when we recite the words. So when we say that this is the body and the blood of Jesus, that reciting of the words, that saying of what Jesus said in the upper room and us rehearsing that, that's the proclaiming. I don't think that's true. I think that even if you're saying the right things, Paul, in the context of this chapter, is telling you, you could be saying the right things and you could theoretically taking the right cup and the right bread, but you are not doing the Lord's Supper because of your factions and your divisions. There's something more happening than just saying the right words. And so this is kind of at the heart of the whole thing. The symbolic actions are proclaiming something. So it's not what I say before we take the bread in the cup that is proclaiming in and of itself, although that does proclaim. That's not what I think he's saying in verse 26. There are many occasions in ordinary life when something that we do makes a powerful statement without any words, whether it's a handshake at the end of a deal. Do we got a deal? Let's shake on it. Whether it's the kneeling down during the national anthem, does that make a proclamation without saying anything? I'm not necessarily saying that's a good idea or a bad idea. I'm just telling you that symbolic actions proclaim something. Somebody that wants to go into some place that requires a mask and they rip off their mask, they're, they're not saying anything, but they might be proclaiming in this day that they're an anti-mask wearer, you know? Whether it's a person of power and nobility stopping the secret service and their motorcade and saying, no, I want to go talk to these common everyday people and spend some time with the average citizens. All of these actions become symbolic and proclaim something. And by that, I don't think that Paul means that we can just preach the gospel with our actions and that that's all that's required. This is a common ideology or phrase that people will use in Christian circles. They will say, well, you can preach the gospel, and if you need to, use words. I have no idea if St. Francis of Assisi ever really did say that, but I don't think that Paul would affirm that. There is no sense to which we're saying, oh, the gospel is proclaimed just by us being together and eating a meal. The gospel is displayed and proclaimed because we're eating a meal in conjunction with the message that we believe. It's the symbol that means something because there's a message attached to the symbol. It's not just that somebody's kneeling during the national anthem, it's that you know why they're kneeling and why that's such a provocative thing for someone to do. There's a message behind the kneel. 
In the same way, there's a message behind the eating and the drinking. And the eating and drinking only takes on significance when you have the message. So it's not one or the other. It is a both and, I believe. And that's why Paul says in the beginning of this letter, I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. It is my ambition to preach Jesus. He does not downplay the preaching to just say, well, we can just display the gospel with our lives. Hogwash. No. That's silliness. You, you can't do that. That's like saying, hey, share me your phone number, and if you need to, use some digits. The nature of a phone number is I need some digits. The nature of a gospel is that I need some words. I need a message about God and about sin and about the world and about Jesus and what he has done and about how that applies to us. Without that message, the meaning and significance of the actions is empty and vain. And so this is precisely what I think is going on here. He is telling us not that we should just preach with our actions and that that's all that matters, but rather our actions further highlight and proclaim the message that we are preaching. And in that way, we would want to say that it is like the root or the seed of the gospel bears beautiful fruit and it bears tree that will flourish out and provide for a community of people life that will give, give sustenance for our everyday needs. And in that way, I think Paul is saying that our behavior is that fruit. And that behavior does proclaim something. And your actions do speak louder than your words. And so therefore, in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, he is telling you that if you've got the right message and you say the right words and you're doing some of those ceremonial things right with the bread and the cup, you are still not taking the Lord's Supper if you have factions and division and a lack of love and patience for one another. Our unity and love and patience with one another is the fruit of the gospel, not its root. It's not what saves us, but it is what we display as a church. And it is God's mission for us to be saved, to be congregated in churches, for us to be a community together, and to display and proclaim the gospel. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4, Paul starts talking about how the church is the manifold witness that displays the wisdom of God to even the angels in heaven. We're not only proclaiming this message to our next door neighbors or the people around us in Palatine and Chicago. We're proclaiming this message to the unseen world of the angels and principalities who are looking at what God is doing in the world and says, wow, look at the church. Look at the way they they eat and drink and live and do life together. And at the center of their gathering is this meal that forms them into a people of love. That's what I think is going on in terms of proclamation. And therefore, it's vital for a church to have both the right seed and message of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel in the way that we behave and live our lives together. For our church to be healthy, if embassy has any hope at doing good to you, to one another, to our neighborhood, to our world, to the mission of making disciples, we must firmly be rooted in both of these realities. Right doctrine leads to right living. To get right doctrine without right living is some sort of disconnect. And it is not appropriate, it is not healthy, and it is a church that you should have either strong and desire to see it be changed and transformed, or a church that you should probably leave and find a church that has both a commitment to right doctrine and right behavior. This is why as a church we have a statement of faith 
And I want you to think again about the idea of music and that illustration. Our statement of faith is, is that doctrine. It's, it's spelling things out. It's like the sheet music on the stand sitting there in front of the musician. Okay, so there's the lyrics. There's the notes. That's the right way to play the song. But then the performance, that's the behavior. And it's one thing to look at that, but then decide, well, I'm just going to kind of improvise like it's jazz and just kind of go off and riff and do whatever I want to do with this song. Not okay. We, we follow the script of God's word and say, here is what we're going to do about living in this world and understanding what God's doing in this world. And therefore, we need both doctrine, statement of faith, sheet music, and then we need actual church covenant and accountability of fruitful Christian living. This will honor God. It's what you need, I believe, and I think it's what our world needs. And so in this sense, this is what Paul is saying, the Lord's Supper is a practice, and it's proclaiming by what we're doing together, and it's proclaiming a message, and he says it's the death of Christ until he returns. So in other words, it's the gospel. So let's finish our time in this message, thinking about how the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel. And I have three simple observations that I want to point out. First, the Lord's Supper is a meal together proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes by affirming the goodness of creation. It affirms the goodness of creation. Many people have a gospel message that is spiritual and opposite of material. It is about what happens to me when I die and about my soul and spirit floating off from my physical body and me living forever in an eternal existence of some sort of ghost spirit form. That, my friends, is a heresy called Gnosticism. It is not the Christian gospel. It is not the truth. It is not why Jesus came. It is everything that I can't stand about American Christianity that it is so missing why Jesus came to affirm the goodness of creation. He came as a human, not as a spirit. He died in our place. He suffered and took the place of us sinners. And then he did what? He rose again as the first fruits of what would be the future new creation. And so, friends, we need to realize that the Lord's Supper is affirming this by giving us physical, material things. Here's another quote from Peter Lightheart on this point. I thought this was well said, and I don't think I could have improved upon it. The Lord's Supper depicts the world as it really ought to be. At the Lord's table, we eat bread together. The debates about the physics of the bread have so dominated the Lord's Supper theology for the last several centuries that the simple fact that Jesus chose bread has seemed to receive little attention at all. Jesus could have instituted a ritual meal and used roasted grain or red meat. These were obviously used in the Old Testament feasts, but that's not what he chose. He chose to signify the kingdom with a feast of bread. Jesus took bread, the universal staple of the human diet, reinforcing the nature of the kingdom as a transformation of this world, as a glorifying of the creature rather than an elevation of man above their creatureliness. The production of bread is thus further a clue to the Christian conception of our place in the world. 
In order for us to make bread, one must apply a complex set of discoveries and operations that transform wheat from its natural state to bread. So when you eat the bread that's set out on the Lord's table, there is an agricultural and culinary and scientific world that's lying in the background. Mankind is given the creation not only to use it for our natural state and our physical life, but to transform us to enrich our life. We are not just the guardians of what is, but the creators of what is not yet. And mankind is not only to eat, mankind is to bake. You were given a little cup when you walked in. Somebody had to make that and produce it and package it. In order for you to eat and drink today, human ingenuity and the goodness of creation is on display. It is proclaiming the gospel, that in the beginning, God made the world, and the world, the material, physical, eating and drinking world is good. That's the first thing that it proclaims. Second, the gospel is proclaimed in the practice of the Lord's Supper by helping us practice the way the world ought to be. The world is not the way it ought to be. Therefore, because of the inclination of the brokenness of our own hearts, the sin that lies beneath us, that's pervasive in all of society, the brokenness that's all around us, the world is not the way it should be. And we need practice. We need help to learn how to live a different kind of way in a different kind of society and community. Sin has completely corrupted every facet of our created world. The goodness of it has now been marred and tainted by our sin. And it's in large part because of our poor ruling of it. It was a, it was a beautiful little section I just read from Lightheart's book about how man was given to have rule and dominion over the earth. We have, we have messed that up ro- royally. And so the supper, it is helping us to see a different kind of world within this world an upside-down kingdom in light of the kingdoms of this world, a different kind of ordering of society and relationships and how we treat one another. And so, as I mentioned in our previous sermon a couple weeks ago, when we were outside, if you remember, the Lord's Supper undermines worldly divisions. It preaches and proclaims that in order for us to eat together, we need to repent of our sin. We need to reconcile with one another We need to examine ourselves, and as we will see in a couple weeks, Lord willing, discern the body of Christ and make sure that we are one together as one loaf before we eat. So therefore, the Lord's Supper proclaims, the world's not as it ought to be. But at the supper, it's a foretaste of what it could be. It gives hope, but at the same time, that message of hope is an indictment against the world's brokenness and sin. So the goodness of our created world needs to be redeemed and restored and made new. And it's the supper that does this. Lightheart, one more time. At the table, we eat bread and drink wine together. And this is the way things ought to be. The ideal world is not a world of atomized individuals, but an irreducibly social reality. For biological need, we can be satisfied in isolation with food. We could eat in our car, we can eat at our desk, we could eat in front of a computer screen. But a feast, 
a meal in community, that's a social event. In all properly functioning churches, someone is always designated as the guardian of the table, and therefore flagrant and impenitent sinners are to be cut off from the fellowship of the feast. This exercise that we call church discipline that centers around the table itself establishes boundaries and creates an in-group and an out-group. Those who participate in the feast are the members of the body of Christ and to be treated as brothers and sisters while those who are outside are enemies of the church. They're cut off from the Lord and they are unevangelized. And the feast draws the ever-shifting lines between the church and the world. It's helping create a new kind of world by us practicing membership and church discipline and discipleship and accountability. And this is why when we give out the Lord's Supper, we say something like, listen, in order for you to receive and participate with us, you must be a baptized believer and a member in good standing at this church or another church somewhere else. If you're a guest or visitor or regular attender, please come to the table knowing that if you have a clear and good conscience hearing the message that the gospel is not just something that you hear today and say, well, that sounds nice. I like that song. It's something that you then practice. It's as if after you hear this message, we're going to take and participate, and it's your turn to start trying to learn the words of the song. How good are you at eating and drinking with a community of people? And I hope it makes all the more sense why last week's message was, doesn't the picture of us being in a home or around tables, the intimacy of fellowship and deep relationships and not just a service to attend and me sit by myself with a small little sample of a bread and a cup, but a full course meal. Doesn't that paint a whole different picture altogether and help us actually practice the things that we're preaching? Third and finally, The gospel not only is that the world is good and that God made a material world for us to enjoy, including food and bread and the cup, and that the world is not as it ought to be, but the Lord's Supper creates a a reality within this broken world of the way it should be. Third and finally, the Lord's Supper proclaims that Christ's future coming is rushing into the present to meet us until he comes. Or as Christy read for us earlier in Luke chapter 22, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. There's a future-oriented aspect. It is not always just look back and remember that Jesus died. And hopefully next week, one of our elders, Kenny, is going to just spend time helping us meditate. What does it mean to remember and look back? But today's message points us forward. And the supper is transcendent of time. It's it's helping us look back and bring from the past the death of Jesus and making that real right now in our present, but it's also helping us see what is to come. At every celebration of the Lord's Supper, God's past catches up with us, God's future meets us here, and it's all summed up in this sentence. Whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you announce, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here we are in the whenever you take the bread and the cup. That's now the present. We are proclaiming the past of the Lord's death and awaiting the great future when God's world will be remade and renewed and the resurrection finds all of us 
alive and well on a new earth and a new heaven. Past and future rushing together in the present, one author says, it is like an ocean of meaning that is being poured into a little bottle of right now. An ocean of meaning being poured into a little bottle of right now. So what is taking place when we eat the bread and the cup is not bringing Jesus Christ to us and transforming the actual bread and the actual cup into the elements of Jesus' body and blood. But rather, as John Calvin has rightly, I think, concluded, by the Spirit, we are being taken to heaven where Jesus Christ reigns and he lives bodily in his resurrected state in majesty and therefore we commune with him. And this is not anything else than us feasting and communing and having a meal with God Almighty, Christ our Lord. So let us not think about just the Spirit coming down and dwelling with us, but remember this communion is us in 1 Corinthians 10. Koinonia is a participation with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. Christ is with us, but in one sense we are with him. When the Israelites were wandering through the desert on their way to the promised land, Moses, he sent out spies. He said, I want you to go ahead into Canaan. I want you to come back and report what you see. You could read about this in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 13. And I think this story illustrates well this point about the future rushing into the present. When they came back, the 12 spies at least 10 of them said, uh, no, we should not go into the promised land of Canaan. The people are strong. They're huge. They're like giants. And we felt like we were small little grasshoppers compared to them. Their cities are, are fortified. We'll never make it. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, though, disagreed. The people heard this news and they sided with the 10 and refused to go up and attack the land. And so God sent them in a roundabout way for 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert, until an entire generation died off, leaving only Joshua and Caleb to enter into the promised land. In the middle of this very sad, disappointing story was a sign of hope, though. The spies came back to a dry stream bed where grapes were growing. Huge, luscious grapes so heavy that a branch with a single cluster needed two people to carry these grapes. They called the place the Cluster Brook. In Hebrew, it's the Wadi Eskol. They brought these grapes and fruits and fruit from the promised land. And even with that hopeful picture of, oh, we're here in this dry, deserted desert, and there in the land that God promised us are luscious grapes. Those grapes are a hope, a sign of hope, a sign of a future world and a future land, a symbol of what would be theirs if they would trust by faith and obey God. One day they would get there, and one day there would be enough clusters of grapes for everyone. In the same way, the bread and the cup that we're about to eat and drink 
is the marriage feast in the future land screaming in to the present reality right now and saying, there's something that's better that's coming. So instead of singing with the Beatles yesterday, while my troubles seem so far away, now it looks as if they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. I say tomorrow all of our troubles will be far away. When Jesus comes again, he'll be here to stay. I believe in tomorrow when Christ returns. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, and give you thanks. We want to thank you for the bread and the cup and all that it symbolizes, an ocean of meaning being squished into this one little moment as we eat together. We want to pray that the presence of your Spirit would be known and felt and tangible, not just in the preaching of the Word and the stirring of our souls and spirit, but in the spirit that bears fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, or in other words, may the fruit of your presence and the spirit of your life-transforming message be evident by the way we love one another. Oh God, we left to our own selves would never be able to live these ways, but by your promise and by your grace and because of how much you have loved us in Christ. We want to thank you and believe afresh that there can be an upside down kingdom and an alternate reality that we call an embassy of heaven, a foretaste of what is to come. And I pray that embassy church will fight with all that it has within them to be a kind of church that cares rightly about the word of God and about the way that that word should transform us and discipline us and disciple us. So may this eating and drinking, may these exercises of bread and cup rush in an ocean worth of meanings and significance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.